You are listening to The Current Podcast, the official podcast of UC San Diego's IT Services Department. I'm your host, Miguel Rodriguez. Today is Wednesday, March 23rd. It is Women's History Month, as I'm sure you were aware, at least I hope you were aware. So today we have a special episode for you. I'm going to start this episode by calling out the UC Women in Technology Charter. They are an independent entity, volunteer-based, spread out throughout the UCs, including our own right here at UC San Diego, that works to promote a supportive and inclusive environment to advance professional goals and aspirations of women in technology right here throughout the University of California system. Here at UC San Diego, the UC Women in Technology Charter is chaired by Jessica Hilt and Allison Flick. So if you have any questions, you can reach out to find out how you can volunteer and support their efforts. One of those efforts happened earlier this week on the UCIT blog. In case you didn't know, the IT systems throughout the UCs have a blog over on the UCOP website. It's called the UCIT blog that you should be checking out every day and checking out their tweets. But they had their UC Women Rock It 2022. So the contributions of UC women working in IT are featured in this annual Women's History Month article by the UC WIT committee every year. Every campus charter sends in their nominees. And the honoree for UC San Diego this year was La Jefa over at the Media Teaching Lab, my friend Adrian Hughes. So this episode will be a conversation that I had with Adrian Hughes and when you hear me set the scene, you will see what makes it extra special. But anyway, let's get on with the conversation. I don't want to take up too much time before we get right into the fun. Remember, head over to the UCIT blog to see who else was an honoree for this initiative throughout the other UCs. And on to Adrian. Okay. Hello, Adrian. Hi. Let's set the scene first, because almost 200 episodes of doing this. Wow. Almost two years. Well, actually over two years of doing this. Congratulations. Thank you. It's pretty wild. This is the first time I've talked to someone in person with a microphone between us. Amazing, <laughs> right? I have discovered today that one of the things I have to relearn is scheduling transit time, because I was late. <laughs> Some meeting popped up. It's going to be a bit for us to navigate this space of travel, traffic, parking, walking to a physical building. Remember pre-pandemic, I think I had to schedule in three hours out of my day just mm -hmm. to prepare, drive, and drive home. That's a lot of time, three hours a day, to navigate. It's really a, a new thing for us to have to figure out. You can't just roll out of bed, yeah. have a cup of coffee, and sit down at your computer and start working. Yeah, is there an ITS pro for that three hours? <laughs> yeah, it would be nice, right? <laughs> it really would be. So, uh, okay, that's our setting. Why are we here? Adrian Hughes, you're the uh, service owner, is that? So I am the manager, the facilities manager for the Media Teaching Labs. That's it, facilities manager, Media Teaching Labs. I wanna make sure I get all those titles right, but we'll talk a little bit about that. More importantly though, you have become an honoree of Woman in Tech. 
It just got announced yesterday at the UCIT blog, which is super cool. And first of all, congratulations. Thank you. Obviously, it's well-deserved, at least obvious to me. So what did you find out that you were going to receive that honor, and what do you think about it? Dan Suki actually reached out to me and asked me if it would be all right if I were nominated. And in particular, I actually didn't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. I do feel honored that out of UCSD, I was the individual that was selected to represent in terms of technology and women in technology specifically. You and me kind of have a certain connection. We have a life experience in the arts and maybe came to the technology a little circuitously as opposed to some people who live and breathe technology. Is that right? Absolutely correct. Interesting to me, but your position as a woman in technology, did that feel right to you? Well, you know, um, I entered graduate school, Mm -hmm. and for those of you who don't know me, I attended graduate school at Tufts University in Boston. It was a program, a consortium between the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. And I went in to graduate school as a photographer. Mm. My advisor suggested that I take a video production class, and I had never held a camcorder in my life. So I enrolled in the course, and all of a sudden, I was learning this stuff called audio cables. What's mm-hmm. an XLR? What's an RCA? What's a BNC cable? What is signal? How do you, you know, like the whole thing was a brand new world for me. After two weeks, I decided that this is something I didn't want to learn. Mm -hmm. I went to the instructor who was a woman, a woman in technology. And she said to me, I said to her, you know, thank you very much for this course, but I would like for you to know that feel very uncomfortable. This isn't something that I actually thought I would be learning. Um, This doesn't interest me. So I wanted to inform you that I'm bowing out of the class. And she said, no, you're not. Mm -hmm. You're not going anywhere. You're a woman in a man's world and you have to learn this. And it gave me pause to the point where I thought, you know, I feel uncomfortable because I am a woman who's never been exposed to this Mm -hmm. sort of, at the time they didn't call it like, you know, technology. Mm -hmm. It was a type of art practice. So I decided to stay in it because I felt that she was right, that the reason why I was in graduate school partially was because I am a visual artist and I wanted to expand my intellectual understanding of art. But I was also there because I understood that having a terminal degree helped me in terms of growing in a corporate way, that Mm -hmm. I needed to be able to have a job. And I wanted to, I was very I wanted to have a creative type of job. So walking with that vision, I wanted a creative job. And also, I, you know, all my instructors were women who dealt in technology, but it was all technology within an art practice. Mm-hmm. I knew I was going to get a really good answer with that. Like, how am I going to ask this without seeming like I might be like insulting? Oh, no. But- <laughs> I mean, I think it's a very valid question because how does anyone walk from point A to point B? Right. How, where's that arc and how do you, how did you get to where you were? And it always starts with a very simple beginning and also someone that you can trust in the process Mm -hmm. of taking you outside of your comfort zone. Yeah, that mentorship capacity, is it comes up again and again. And it's always in connection with leaving the comfort zone. Yeah. I think that's always been very fascinating. But you bring up another question that just popped in my head. You went into school with your design on becoming a visual artist and your mentor has suddenly put upon you the responsibility of representation. (laughs) What was that like at the time? Did you even think about it? I did not think of representation 
within the art practice field. Right. Um, I didn't understand at the time. So mind you, I was in graduate school 1996, 97. You know, I graduated in 2001. You know, digital cameras, it was still, everything was just coming on tape, mm -hmm. right? I used three quarter inch decks to digitize to. I was using... So for everybody listening... <laughs> this is so old school. Yeah. So... Three-quarter-inch decks are analog tape decks with these very large, chunky tapes. You you may not even be able to visualize it. But I used to do time coding on three-quarter-inch decks for a news organization. That was my first job out of high school. So you bring me back. But I wanted to kind of give people a description because I'm sure some people are like, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, you know, what was very important about this interaction with this faculty member is that it, it um, planted a seed about my own growth, mm -hmm. um, not only as a visual artist, but also the responsibility of once you graduate from, you know, school, how are you going to support yourself? Yeah. It spurred me to seek out positions in Boston based within media and technology. So for instance, one summer I got a job with the Annenberg Foundation mm -hmm. and the Harvard School for Astrophysics. So they did education broadcasting using physics with the physicists at the center. Thereafter, I acquired a position at Harvard Business School mm -hmm. where we were doing groundbreaking technology that did not exist. Like, you know, in 1998, the whole school was wireless, mm -hmm. right? It was mind-blowing. Science you could, fiction. Right. You could sit <laughs> on the grass with a laptop and, like, look something up on the internet, right? Like, how did that even happen? You know, so Harvard Business School invested millions of dollars in technology because of who the, you know, the kind of people that attend school there and who have graduated and continue to support that institution. So while I was pursuing a conceptual art practice, I also had a foot in the emergence mm -hmm. of digital technology, specifically digital technology and education. So that is where that really was birthed for me. Yeah, it's fascinating because, well, first of all, I'm the chair for UC Tech. And one thing that comes up a lot, whether it's research, arts, teaching and learning, whatever, there's not like one thing and then technology. Technology has become a vein that goes through everything. And in a way, your experience has given you almost a leg up amongst other artists I know You've been able to see both worlds and live in both worlds. And I think that's really something that, you know, it's a blessing. It was hard to know at that time. Yeah. It was literally the road less traveled. Mm -hmm. And I was also on the cusp as a woman sitting in a space dominated by men that didn't hold a seat for someone like me. But I also was very lucky at Harvard to have, you know, an exceptional boss and people that I worked with who wanted to teach me this technology or so my job, I was an encoder. Yes. Wow. So I used to encode. Yeah. Harvard was really fantastic. I, <laughs> you know, back then they used to videotape all of their lectures mm -hmm. and then they'd hand me off the tapes. Oh my gosh, that must have and, been agonizing. <laughs> oh, hours and hours and hours of tapes. And then I would digitize it. But see, back then that's what they offered their mm -hmm. alumni, sure. right? They can go back and watch any lecture. So I would wow. digitize these lectures into a server. The ser and I would have to ride the audio In the, 90s. the whole time. In the 90s. Yeah. And then the server would spit back a URL. Yeah. 
And I would have to take that URL and email it to the faculty member and say, here, you can include this in your online syllabus. That's so funny. Which, you know, who did that back then? So when I came to UCSD, I already knew what the future was going to be because Harvard exposed me to it. Yeah. Because they had the infrastructure financially to create this kind of world. And because I could see that and understood where education was going, you know, coming to UCSD and working in a place like the Media Teaching Labs, I saw the future 10 years in advance in terms of fiscal abilities. Mm -hmm. So it's one thing to know that this is where education is going to be. But how do you talk? How do you raise these issues mm -hmm. with administration or yeah. the people who are your supervisors and say, I need this funding because this is the future? And if they don't have a vision or don't understand the future, then it's going to be more problematic. And initially, there was a lot of pushback mm -hmm. because I was trying to explain that, you know, this is all changing, whether you know it or not, and this is the way it's going to go. So, yeah, I mean, it was a fantastic experience straddling this world between conceptual art world and sitting in a space of media technology for education. And in so many ways they're kind of like the same thing. Mm -hmm. And Absolutely. once you understand that conceptual innovation is across all practices, really. So the people who develop technology, they're conceptual thinkers, they're conceptual artists in and of themselves. What's happening now in the engineering department, which I'm getting all the time now, is students creating conceptual visionary objects Right, like they're learning how to scan a physical body and mm -hmm. have it be available on an iPhone. Yeah. Right. It's amazing Wild. what they're coming up with. Conceptual thinking is the cornerstone of all intellectual development. And it doesn't matter whether it's an art practice in painting or video installation, you know, it is literally comes from the same space within the brain that allows for innovation and intuitional development. And if we were to summarize that, you have to imagine it before you can make it, right? You have to imagine yeah. it before you can apply it. Exactly. And what's really fascinating is when you came here from your experience at Harvard, you became a voice for innovation. I know you told me you got pushback, but was there anything kind of a little more prejudiced or... Well, no, no, Not actually, really? I reminded them why they hired me. <laughs> That, that was a part of the interview process, was the it. fact that I knew these things. Yeah. So when I got pushed back, I would say, now you know you hired me to do this, and I'm sorry that you're uncomfortable with these changes, but we have to move in this direction. So a part of it is, it's like there is a dialogue with the team that you work with, mm -hmm. despite the fact this person is your supervisor. Yeah. It's your responsibility to actually step up to the plate and say, I know you're uncomfortable with this, but you need to get over it. And in a very real way, they're the lucky ones because we've been talking a lot about conceptual. But once you get the funding, these new programs and, and, and things get put in place, then you have to talk about application. And going from concept to application is very difficult, but you had that in your pocket already. Yes. It's called organization. Yeah. Right? Like, how do you put things into categories? Mm -hmm. How do you like think about implementing plans such as redoing studio flooring or, you know, putting up a whole new lighting grid? I'll just say it goes back to how I approach my own art practice, which is I know people think that artists might be flighty, but that is not the case. It takes so much business savvy mm -hmm. in order to survive in this current world. Especially now. I'm talking spreadsheets, mm -hmm. inventory sheets, 
you know, you track all of your taxes. I mean, it is very, very complicated. There is no difference between an art project that I am working on and also perhaps the hole that we're knocking in the wall in two months <laughs> into our prop room. So, uh, you know, a project is a project. It requires the same type of, of management yeah. and an organization. So super cool yeah well i knew we could talk for a long time oh yeah uh, but <laughs> i know there's so much to talk about there's so much to talk about well thank you this has been really exciting to talk to you in person yay sitting person. on a chair in front of you it's, yeah it's really great to see you as well thank you, you thanks i sure hope you're enjoying this podcast remember to let your fellow it services staff members know that this podcast exists. Get everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you can get your podcasts. This podcast is a collaborative effort, and we want to hear from you. If you have any ideas for podcasts or topics, send them to me at its-podcast at ucsd.edu. That's it for today. Keep an ear out for the next episode of The Current Daily. <laughs>